Thank you very much. Thank you, Alice. Um, I'm particularly delighted to be here today and to have actually made it. Um, I gave a talk, I think, last November. Um, the previous one was cancelled because it was on the day of the big storm and I couldn't actually get out of Paddington to get to Oxford on, on that day. So I'm glad to have got here without incident. And I'm particularly pleased um, to be speaking to you today and to have been invited by Alice uh, because when I look at Alice's webpage, well, I tend to think that I work in a cross-disciplinary way and often am one of, one of a kind, but I kind of feel looking at Alice's research interests sort of mirrors so closely my own. I think um, it's a really fantastic opportunity to exchange ideas as well. Um, I am a reader in science and technology studies, um, although my official title is Reader in Assessing Research Impact. Um, and I'm delighted today to not actually be giving a presentation on research impact, although it wouldn't surprise me if discussion does tend to in that direction because it does seem to be a bit of a national academic preoccupation at the moment. So um, today I want to first outline um, Clark Carr's 1963 book, the uses of the university. And this intro introduces the concept of the multiversity. And then I want to skip forward 30 years to 1994. Um, and that's when, in the UK context, largely set in a UK context, we're introduced in higher education policy and theory to the notion of the postmodern university, or certainly that's when the key text in the area was published. And then I want to consider what this idea of the multiversity and the postmodern university share in common. And um, I will argue um, that it's really interesting to consider the questions that these competing yet similar visions raise for us today. I'll conclude the talk then by considering the relevance of the idea of the multiversity and the postmodern university for the future of higher education research and higher education policy in the UK. But I think a fair question to start with is why bother today with a 50-year-old book the uses of the university and a concept of the multiversity that relates to the USA um, 50 years ago and to a small number of elite research universities, around about 20 in number, not the whole sector. Well, I think the book describes um, conditions that 30 years later in the UK were being discovered by a group of um, scholars and being called the key characteristics of the postmodern university. So I think in many ways this text presages um, that later discussion and in a different location. Uh, one important element that I want to draw on in my talk is the idea that there are a variety of overlapping histories or what we might call narratives of the university um, to the extent that various competing um, versions exist, coexist side by side with each other. And indeed, when compared with the more recent and UK-centric um, literature on the postmodern university, um, Carr's idea of the multiversity is in several key respects perhaps even more relevant to understanding and analysing the HE sector in the UK today. And hence the talk's subtitle, Yesterday's Forgotten Future. And just a coincidence, this, I, was, um, I purchased a poster. I'm based at Brunel University. This was a building that was made famous in um, Kubrick's Clock, The Clockwork Orange. Um, that used to be the library, now a lecture centre on the campus at Brunel University, noted for um, being an example of brutalist modernism. And this is sort of quite a nice poster, I think, that skips back a few more decades to give an Art Deco rendering of a building created in the 1960s. But I think one theme of today's talk is the fluidity of history and narrative. And there's the subtitle there, Discover Yesterday's Forgotten Future. Um, I was trying to think of a subtitle for my talk and I actually woke up last night and went, ah, oh, bingo, and ran out and, and wrote this down. So anyway... 
So the concept of the multiversity was presented by Clark Carr here in the book The Uses of the University in 1963. Now Carr was the first Chancellor of Berkeley and also the 12th President of the University of California. He was a professor in economics and he was also a professor of industrial relations. And so the book The Uses of the University was based on a three-part series of annual Gulkind lectures that were presented by Clark Carr at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government in April 1963. So what was Carr's intention? So in a 1994 preference to the fourth edition, Carr reflects on what it was that he set out to do. Um, he thought that at the time he was describing the emerging reality of a small number of American universities, as I said, around 20 of them, which were elite research-focused institutions. And his intention was to give what he called a rigorous look at where he believed Harvard and Berkeley and their small number of counterparts stood at that stage in history. So in the preface to the uses of the university, he maintains that when a university president turns up to give a talk, um, he wanted to do something a bit different. So he wanted, instead of platitudes and nostalgic glances backward to what it once was, um, he thought the university really needed a rigorous um, look at in the context of the world that it occupied um, that day. And so um, what may seem quite commonplace descriptions to us today were actually regarded by many at the time as blasphemy. And I will come on to that later. So this was a very controversial text. So the multiversity concept is something that Carr analyzes within the broader social situation at the time. So in the 1963 preface, he argues that the basic reality for the university is the widespread recognition that new knowledge is the most important factor in economic and social growth. He felt that um, the country was just then beginning to perceive that the university's invisible product of knowledge may be the most powerful single element in American culture, affecting the rise and fall of professions and even of social classes and of regions and even of nations. So he argued that there was increasing recognition of the uses of university-generated knowledge in terms of economic growth, in international competition, and in political and social as well as cultural development. I think these are narratives that we're used to hearing today, but at the time, this really was something quite different to be saying. So he argued, because of this fundamental reality, the university is being called upon to produce knowledge as never before, for civic and regional purposes, and even for no purpose at all beyond the realisation that most knowledge eventually comes to serve mankind. And it is also being called upon to transmit knowledge to an unprecedented proportion of the population. Now, I'm not sure there if he's talking about teaching or a university's wider dissemination function, but I suppose it's probably a bit of both. So what is the multiversity? Um, Carr is very clear that this is focused on this small number of American research universities. And he was talking about a single campus. Um, there is a notion of a multiversity that is a university that um, has various campus locations. He's very clear that is not what he means. He is really talking about um, a single campus institution at that time. So what Clark does is give a detailed historical overview of the development of the university through history. And I'm sure anybody um, who's involved in reading about higher education theory knows that in terms of the theory of the university, there's usually a journey through history and time that um, gives some kind of narrative of the um, evolution of the university to where it is today. Well, I'm not going to do that. Um, Carr um, goes off to ancient Greece and then um, he goes to Humboldt and Berlin um, and then to Cardinal Newman's Dublin, itself based on Oxford 
um, and onwards up to the multiversity. Um, I'm not going into that here, but there are many texts that do. Now, Carr maintains that the university started as a single community of masters and students. He argues it may even be said to have a soul in the sense of a central animating principle. And now the motif of the soul is one that Carr regularly returns to and we'll come back to occasionally in this talk today. But he argues today the large American university is rather a whole series of communities and activities held together by a common name, a common governing board and related purposes. And an important defining feature of the multiversity for Carr is its name and that the name of an institution stands for a certain standard of performance, a certain degree of respect, a certain historical legacy and a characteristic quality of spirit even. And this is of the utmost importance, he argues, to faculty and to students and to government agencies and industries with which the institution deals. And so protection and enhancement of this prestige of the name of the university are quite central to it. Um, he also reflects on the idea of American educator Abraham Flexner, um, who compared the university to an organism um, whose parts and the whole were inextricably bound together. For Carr, he argues not so the multiversity. Many parts can be added and subtracted, subtracted with little effect on the whole or even um, little notice taken or any blood spilled. It is more a mechanism, a series of processes producing a series of results, a mechanism held together by administrative rules and powered by money. This was actually heresy at the time to be saying this. In terms, there are further definitions that can be gleaned um, throughout the book and they're quite detailed and often quite contradictory but that is indeed the intention so the multiversity is seen as an inconsistent institution at its heart um, it has several purposes not one has several centers of power not one serves several clientels not one and is of service to many markets and um, has concern for many publics. So as an institution, the multiversity, Carr argues, looks to the past and far into the future and is often at odds with itself in the present. So here's another quote. Um, the multiversity has demonstrated how adaptive it can be to new opportunities for creativity, how responsive to money, how eagerly it can play a new and useful role, how fast it can change while pretending that nothing has happened at all, how fast it can neglect some of its ancient virtues. So I think morality, soul, virtue are themes that keep coming back and back. So to provide further illustration of this, I'd like now to look at Carr's definition of the multiversity through looking at three different elements um, of the multiversity. Firstly, the multiversity community, then multiversity governance, and then the role of the multiversity in wider society. So in terms of the idea of a community, um, He's making the case that the multiversity is not one community, it is in fact several. So at the student level, you've got on the one hand undergraduates and graduates. At um, the faculty level, there's um, different communities of humanists, social scientists and scientists. There are also professional schools with a more vocational focus. And there was a growing breed of administrators as well. So, a community, he argues, like the medieval communities of masters and students, should have common interests. In the multiversity, they are quite varied, even conflicting. So, he argues that a community should have a soul, a single animating principle, 
but the multiversity has several. Some of them, he says, are quite good, although there is much debate on which souls really deserve salvation. So he's arguing that Cardinal Newman's idea of a university he describes as a village with its priests. He thinks the idea of a modern university is more akin to a town and a one-industry town with an intellectual oligarchy. The idea of the multiversity, he argues, is a city of infinite variety. Um, and note here that the multiversity is being seen as something that is somehow separate or past um, modernity, although Card never discusses um, the multiversity in these terms. Now, he thinks that some get lost in the city, some rise to the top within it, most fashion their lives within one of its many subcultures. There is less sense of community than within the village, but also less sense of confinement. There is less sense of purpose um, than within the town, but there are more ways to excel. There are also more refuges for anonymity, both for the creative person and the drifter. And he believes that in a city, there are many separate endeavours under a single rule of law. Now, in terms of students within the multiversity, he believes that they're older, more likely to be married. Um, I think he thinks of all students and faculty as exclusively male. Um, gender isn't mentioned once throughout the whole edition. So anyway, he believes the students are older, more likely to be married, more vocationally oriented and more drawn from all classes and races than the students in the village and they find themselves in a most intensely competitive atmosphere. Now, he draws on work by Clark and Trow, also published in 1963, um, in saying that students identify less with the total community and more with its subcultures, um, collegiate, that are centred on sororities or, or frat houses, academic, who apparently are the, the serious scholars getting down to work, um, vocational um, students and the nonconformist students. So those could be the radicals or the more, more bohemian types. And he thinks that those subcultures are the groups that students identify with more readily than a broader university committee. So he thinks the multiversity is a confusing place for the student. Um, he, again, um, has problems establishing his identity and sense of security within it, but it offers a vast range of choices um, where he encounters the opportunities and dilemmas of freedom. The casualty rate is high. Now, in terms of the faculty, he argues that the multiversity is an institution that where the faculty have experienced a great deal of change in recent years. Um, he argues that the multiversity is in the mainstream of events um, and to the teacher and researcher have been added the roles of consultant and of administrator. And he quotes from Tuve in 1959, which as far as I can work out seems to be um, a, a, a newspaper article um, saying that a professor's life has become a rat race of business and activity, managing contracts and projects, guiding teams and assistants, making numerous, numerous trips, sitting on committees for government agencies and engaging in other distractions necessary to keep the whole frenetic business from collapse. Now, I'm sure that several people will identify with that picture today. But again, at that time, this picture um, was seen as something um, that was relatively new. Um, additionally, um, there were many faculty members who had research assistants and teaching assistants um, and departments and institutes to run um, where faculty had essentially become administrators in that role as well. Uh, one important element is that he says that devoted to equality of opportunity, um, the faculty within the multiversity is in fact a class society. And he makes a distinction between three different classes that existed within the faculty. Um, he argues teaching has become less central, 
research is more important and that's given rise to what's been called the non-teacher um, and the higher he says a man's standing the less he has to do with the students and that's seen as a good thing so there's a threefold culture um, that's replaced what used to be just the faculty um, those who do research only those who teach and they're largely in an auxiliary role and those who still um, do some of both. And he talks about the emergence of the unfaculty and that in fact, much of the teaching and research is actually done by the unfaculty. So these will be people um, who aren't full faculty members who are probably on temporary contracts. And he also talks about the affluent professor who has additional sources of, of income that are derived from consulting work or getting in large research grants that um, is in a class above. So he argues the intellectual world has become fractionalized as interests become much more diverse. Now, in terms of sort of fractionalized interest, he talks about the university faculty club. He argues that there are fewer common topics of conversation at the faculty club and faculty members are less members of their particular university and more colleagues within their national academic discipline groups. So in this sense, the notion of a cohesive professoriate within a university is diminishing. Now, in terms of the governance of the multi um, versity. Um, Carr has said that the multiversity is like a city and he thinks of it as a city-state in terms of its governance. He argues it may be inconsistent as an institution but it still needs to be governed not as the guild it once was but as a complex entity with greater fractionalized power. And he argues there are several competitors for this power. There are students, and he believes that students have considerable strictly academic influence, um, quite beyond that which they are usually given credit. And he argues that in terms of selecting electives to study, students determine which areas or disciplines in a university will grow. And he talks about their choices as consumers guiding university expansion and contraction. So we have a notion of students as consumers, which we'll return to in the context of the postmodern university um, and a bit differently. Um, in terms of the faculty, um, he believes that influence over the general direction of the growth of the American multiversity has been quite small in terms of faculty influence. However, some individual um, faculty members have managed to wield substantial and even determinative influence in the expanding of institutes and research grants. And those would probably be affluent professors who can command large resources and power. And there's also public authority, um, or what we may think of in terms of public accountability. And um, one common feature of American universities was a board of lay members um, that would be involved in university governance. He saw that state universities um, were coming under increasing scrutiny from the State Department of Finance, the governor and the legis legislature, and there was a tendency towards increased detailed review. So in total, he felt that the location of power had generally moved from inside to outside the original community of masters and students. Um, the nature of the multiversity, he argues, makes it inevitable that this historical transfer will not be reversed in any significant fashion. So, and he lists several different types. Um, oh, I think I've gone forward. I jumped to have one. There are several different types um, of external and semi-external influences. And he thinks the American sister, system is particularly sensitive to the pressures of its many publics and it, to a greater extent than Euro, European 
universities are. So he thinks the multiversity has many publics and with many interests. And by the very nature of the multiversity, many of, the, many of these are quite legitimate and others he sees as actually being quite frivolous. Um, so state universities have a blurred line between often what is internal and external. Um, private universities also have to account to um, donors, foundations, federal agencies and professional and business communities. And also public universities have um, extra publics in terms of trade union and public school communities, um, agriculture and perhaps um, inquiry by a more searching press. Oh, I keep, keep trying to race ahead. And there's also the rise of the administration within the multi-university, which is becoming more pro prominent and formalised and separated as a distinct function. So as the institution becomes more complex, the role of administration becomes more central in attempting to integrate the multiversity. Although um, Carl's not very clear on if the administration is becoming more powerful or not. Um, I think as a university president, there are many, many, many pages that go on to detail the role of the multiversity president. Um, the main point is that a president needs to have many, many faces to speak to all these different constituencies within and out with the university, um, but mostly must be a mediator that's working to find some consensus. And so this is giving us a picture of what we might call decentered governance rather than top-down hierarchical government that we would likely um, associate with institutions at the time. Okay, so just briefly then, in terms of the relationship between the multiversity and wider society, he believes that the multiversity's edges are fuzzy and the multiversity reaches out to alumni, legislators, businessmen, um, various interests, who are all related to one or more of its various internal communities. So we noted previously that Carr sees the multiversity as being at the centre of mainstream events as a key to economic growth and international competition and to social and cultural progress. Um, the multiversity, therefore, he believes, should serve the national interest. In this respect, he argues, it serves society almost slavishly, a society it also criticises sometimes unmercifully. So how did this talk go down? How was the book received by the professoriate at the time? Well, he argues that um, the conservative side of the professoriate accused him of blasphemy. Um, they accused him of saying that undergraduate students were often neglected, that some faculty members were becoming more attached to their funding agencies than their universities. This is the idea of the funding agency as alma mater. Um, that there was a developing class structure on campus in the, um, and there was the rise of the unfaculty. The campus was not like an ivory tower, but more like a city. And that research was not being directed towards pure scholarship, but was instead an instrument of national purpose. Well, some of these things he clearly was saying, but I don't think it's quite as simplistic as that. Um, others argued that Carr was discussing um, or describing changes that had happened. His problem was that he was being too indiscreet in talking about it publicly. The more radical side of the professoriate, um, from Carr's point of view, um, accused him of glorifying the university as a social service station, responding to effective market demand rather than to human social needs. They argued that the role of the university should not be integration into national life, but should provide instead a sustained critique of society. So in his defence, um, this is a much published book and over the years Carr has had the opportunity to write many new 
um, prefaces, etc. And he felt um, in a 1994 preference, he was surprised that on the basis of the book, he entered into a series of controversies that were continuing even to that day. And he also felt that his lectures were misrepresented by a variety of secondary sources and that people had got to know them, his lectures through the secondary sources um, rather than um, going directly to the lectures themselves. He states in a commentary published in a later edition um, that there was a particular sentence in the preface that he wished he had printed in bold and that said analysis should not be confused with approval or description with defence. So he feels he's unfairly um, being portrayed um, as being you know, time-serving in the interests of the economy and politicians when he felt that he was describing a state of affairs that had occurred in post-war America and wasn't coming down on either side particularly, although he does note that his book is called The Uses of the University, not The Misuses Thereof. So I think there, there are some normative strands that do come through. Um, and in this 94 preface, um, in response to the accusation that the multiversity was presented purely as a service station for society's needs, um, he says he regarded multiversities as pluralistic, not monolithic institutions, and thus could and did both integrate into society and simultaneously serve at it, as, it, uh, as its critics. That, he says, was part of their magic. So in terms of positives, he felt that the notion of the multiversity actually brought with it many compensations. So salaries and status, he argued, were higher. Um, faculty members were more fully participating members of society rather than creatures that were on the periphery. And some were at the very centre of national and um, world events. Um, there were far more opportunities for research and he believed that the multiversity had few peers in the preservation and dissemination and examination of external truths. He felt there were no living peers in the search for new knowledge, and there were no peers in all history among institutions of higher learning in serving so many of the segments of an advancing civilization. So lofty claims indeed. So while the multiversity is inconsistent internally as an institution, it is consistently productive. Um, while torn by change, it has the stability of freedom. And while, back to the soul again, though it has not a single soul to call its own, its members pay their devotions to truth. So, on to the postmodern university. So the idea of the postmodern university is bound to a largely UK-centric literature, and most notably a collection edited by Anthony Smith and Frank Webster in 1994, um, The Postmodern University, Contested Visions of Higher Education in Society. And I was very, very happy in Australia to find a copy of this in the National Library, um, which was great fun. It's a beautiful library. If you ever get the chance, you should go there on Lake Burley Griffin. So... While this text presents multiple views um, for and against the idea of a postmodern university or whether it in fact exists, um, the sociologists Sig Sigmund Bauman and Krishan Kumar are of the belief that the postmodern university is the state in which they were currently existing. So incidentally, in this connection, only Kumar mentions Carr's idea of the multiversity, and that's in terms of the multiversity as a city and in terms of post-war universities having increasing involvement with economic and political institutions. Although I'd argue that Carr, in many respects, remarkably presages many of the features attributed to the postmodern university. Um, but we must also bear in mind that the postmodern university concept is mostly in the context of the UK and post-Robbins and the expansion in student numbers and relates to the whole university sector. So there is a different context. They're not um, exact parallels. So what is 
the postmodern university? Well, in terms of um, the volume itself, in the concluding chapter, Smith and Webster actually go through and draw out what they find to be um, almost universal themes. And in the context of this, I refer to a paper of mine, um, Beyond the Postmodern University, she says plugging, um, published in the European Legacy last year. And it's part of a special collection on the future university. So some of the ideas I draw on here um, are from this paper, and there is more argument in depth that you can find there. And I've got loads of off-prints, so I could send you some. The publisher sent me about 50. Um, so there's a common narrative um, that Smith and Webster found um, of the changing features of the university by era. Um, so there's the idea of the transition from the late modern university, and that's where Kumar seems to locate Carr's multiversity. Um, and the... Um, appearance of the postmodern university, they guess, looking at what everybody else has written, is put somewhere in the early 1990s. Um, the crucial factor is that higher education is not simply adapting, but it is rather transmuting into a radically new phenomenon. Somehow it seemed to be something completely different from what has gone before. Um, the postmodern university is defined by heterogeneity and the lack of any central organising principle, and it subverts many of the traditional justifications of the university. So there's no fixed definition of the postmodern university, because that wouldn't be very postmodern, let's face it. But I argue in here that there are many shared family resemblances which can be drawn from different accounts. And so other key features include the idea um, of economic instrumentalism viewed as a negative thing and the requirement for research to meet economic or societal needs, a requirement that's being imposed externally. The rise of managerialism, the rise of students as consumers, and also the rejection of the idea of authoritative knowledge and also, I really don't like this word, massification um, in student numbers. Now, I've highlighted the bottom two in a different colour because I think these are more unique to the postmodern university. The rest in different forms we've already seen in the context of the multiversity. Okay. Okay, and so the, um, in terms of massification, I think this is um, obviously connected with post-Robin's um, expansion of education, even though 94 is sort of 30 years later. And it's not really until... Um, when did Blair get in? Was that 97? It's sort of post-97 when there's um, policy towards even greater expansion. So the question is... Is this something that is very relevant for us to discuss today? But we'll come on to that later. Now, the idea of the rejection of authoritative knowledge is certainly some, nothing that Clark Carr was dealing with, and it isn't discussed um, in the context of the multiversity. Um, but really, the difference here is the introduction of postmodern theory into the analysis. Um, it's the argument that due to loss of faith in the Enlightenment project, that knowledge as we have known it in the academy is coming to an end. Um, and this strand of thinking follows from Leotard's postmodern condition. And it's something that Sigmund Bauman describes us having in the university arrived at the end of meaning. So in their concluding chapter then, Smith and Webster um, give a good summary of a composite definition of the postmodern university. They say there's a multiplicity of differences, so difference is the real defining characteristic, different academics pursuing different knowledges, different teams of researchers combining and recombining to investigate shifting topics, different sorts of students following different courses with different modes of study and different concerns among themselves, different employment arrangements for different types of staff, 
difference everywhere in this postmodern, flexible, accommodating university. I think that last bit they convey a bit tongue-in-cheek. But I would say this all sounds very familiar in the context of the multiversity. So in terms of looking at the postmodern university as a community, in terms of students, we find that the advent of student loans and a recasting of students as consumers or customers um, who purchase training or entitlement for the job market is a key feature. Um, massification or rapid expansion within the sector um, Large-scale instrumental course delivery um, means that students, it is argued, no longer experience a liberal education or personal enlightenment. And it's argued in the postmodern university, teaching and learning are marked by homogeneity and also change. Um, so there's flexibility, more flexibility than before, new forms of vocationalism, new forms of pedagogy, or pedagogy, I'm never quite sure how to say that word, um, new kinds of students, new kinds of learning, and plus new uses of technologies and new opportunities for remote learning as well. In terms of the faculty, um, a defining feature is hyper-specialisation and the academic community as a fiction. Um, have I gone ahead one? Okay, I went ahead. So Bauman argues that the academic community is actually a fiction. He says incumbents of university offices know little and comprehend even less of what their next door neighbours do in their teaching or research hours and would need a dictionary to understand what the occupants of another floor are talking about. So again, this sounds kind of familiar. And just briefly, in terms of the postmodern university, and governance. Um, in fact, I was surprised not more was actually said on the notion of governance in the text. Um, a key theme is that managerialism is intensifying, but there's also a growing notion of audit as state surveillance and the notion of academic self-governance or governmentality and self-regulation as well. And I would suspect that would be a much, much stronger theme today. So in terms of the place of the postmodern university and wider society, economic instrumentalism um, is almost university view, viewed negatively um, and critically and is seen as something that's being imposed from outside and by government. Um, but in terms of the university and wider society, this is mostly addressed in terms of the notion of a, cult, of a university's cultural function. So there are multiple cases being put. One is that university education is no longer elite, and that means that it no longer has a cultural function, which was the preservation of high culture, as students receive a purely instrumental education in the postmodern university. Um, another view is that there's no longer a consensus on what constitutes high culture, um, or if that would even be desirable in itself. Um, or there's the point of view that the postmodern university embraces and so preserves and transmits many cultures. So not one culture, but many. And in terms of the radical function of universities, this is a quote from Krishan Kumar. Um, he said, it has often been said that the function of universities is not to swim with the tide, but to go against it. It is this conviction that underlies many accounts of the university that stress its maintenance and enrichment of a certain high culture against the encroachments of business, politics and everyday life. This line of defense, he argues, is no longer tenable. So I think that's bringing me towards the end of my talk. I think that there are three themes that I would like to explore, but perhaps in the context um, of discussion, because I'll be interested to know what people think. I think number one is an idea of slippage between epochs. And it's sort of quite slippery trying to deal with history um, in the context of this discussion. Um, for example, I think the key defining features of the postmodern university turn out not to be unique at all. Um, when I wrote this paper, 
um, to be honest, I hadn't read Carr's um, The Uses of the University. I've only come to that recently because I was focusing on the UK higher education system, so I wasn't looking at that American literature. But I think it really should be regarded as a foundational text, um, as there are many shared features between the multiversity and the postmodern university. And so in this paper, um, I identified three contested versions of the postmodern university, um, many of which are highly recognisable in the context of the multiversity. Um, I won't go through every single thing, but um, there's an instrumentalist um, narrative. This is drawn from the various... Um, descriptions of the postmodern university within the book. That's really just tied to, late, to a late modern vision of the university. So wealth creation, um, impact and use value over truth, um, financial cutbacks, that wasn't the context of the multiversity because the money was going up and up then. But students as consumers, the ideas of a sausage factory, etc. Many of these are themes that have already been picked up. Um, I think there's a, a gothic, what I've called a gothic narrative, that's really lamenting the halcyon days of the modern or late modern university. And um, it's about the environment. The university is an environment of constant crisis, and it's something to be endured rather than to be enjoyed. Um, there's a dilution of high culture. Um, it's about student performance, not understanding and skill acquisition and not personal development. Um, again, several of these themes come through in the context of, of the um, multiversity. I think that um, what we could call the postmodernist narrative is something that is something more unique because it's tied to um, postmodern theory. And this is the notion of uncertainty, um, no grand organising principle, Although, again, the multiversity is about there being no grand organising principle. Um, but there's an interesting refusal of authoritative expertise and, a knowledge, and knowledge, which is something quite different. different. Um, although the notion of the academic community as a fiction is something um, that Carr was um, alluding to. And so there's a notion of academic disciplines as being symbolic and knowledge um, as coming to an end. So actually in my um, Beyond the Postmodern University paper, I argue um, that these narratives are essentially of a modern or late modern university. And I argue there's no such thing as a postmodern university. It doesn't exist. But I think the idea of the multiversity would help to have made this an even stronger claim. Um, in fact, in terms of rooting many of those concepts in actual late modern terms um, and at that time. Um, a second point um, for discussion is the coexistence of multiple visions of the university side by side. Um, Carr talks about ideal types, and he says, back in 1963, the university of today can perhaps be understood in part by comparing it with what it once was. These are ideal types from which it has derived, ideal types which still constitute the illusions of some of his inhabitants. He believes that, by contrast, the multiversity has a reality rooted in the logic of history. He sees it as an imperative rather than a reasoned choice among what he calls um, elegant alternatives. So um, this is one of the key quotes. He argues that there are several competing visions of true purpose in terms of the role of a university, each relating to a different layer of history, a different web of forces, and these cause much of the malaise in the university communities of today. The university is so many things to so many different people that it must, of necessity, be partially at war with itself. Okay, and that's, I think, an interesting theme to come back to in discussion. So I think a final question is how true are 
the accounts of the postmodern university. Um, I guess everybody may have a completely different take on this. I mean, personally, I, I graduated from my first degree in 1993, and um, the postmodern university volume came out in 1994, and that doesn't speak to me at all of my student experience at that time. Um, although that was at Southampton, and it tends to be argued that the focus is um, on the newer universities. But I'd say I've taught at a range of institutions, including Oxford, um, Annex Poly, and the Open University. I don't really recognise um, this description of um, the student experience um, in terms of not receiving critical learning or developing critical thinking skills. So the question is, are these descriptions even accurate? Is it anything that any of you recognise? Be really interesting to know what you think. So very finally, last one, um, I have th three further questions. Um, and if we can touch on these in discussion, these are ideas I want to develop, so that would be really helpful, um, particularly with this audience. Um, has anything in particular changed since 1994 and today? Um, I've got a few ideas, but it will be interesting. Um, but does it match the multiversity idea? Does it make it more relevant? Does it fit more with the postmodern university idea or not at all? Um, I wonder if we can develop a decentered approach to higher education analysis and higher education policy um, that can simultaneously recognise competing narratives of the university rather than imposing just the one vision, um, particularly if it's one version um, or adherence uh, or people adhering to conflicting versions, um, that means that a university will of necessity partially be at war with itself. And finally, in terms of um, the expectations of higher education policy and the expectations of university management, should we ask if we are being expected as faculty um, to individually embody all of the roles of all of the visions? Are we, in fact, being asked too much? Um, a young academic today, when being hired, would be expected, of course, to have high-quality scholarship, um, excellent teaching, um, be engaged in some sort of outreach. I don't know, have a TV programme, whatever. I'm not being serious. Um, but certainly be thinking about research impact and have markers of research esteem and be generating all sorts of research grants and leading research teams. Um, should we instead be thinking about universities more along the lines of the multiversity and it being a sum of its different parts and looking for individual excellence in some and not, area, not all areas and not all roles? And just my very final shot, if you ever wondered what the future university might look like, this is the future university in Egypt. It exists. There you go.